Um, as, I, as you know, I used to work in advertising, the devil's own profession. And uh, the story is told of uh, a man who was uh, talking with uh, Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers, and he was, uh, he was talking about his profession. He had uh, qualms about his profession, the job that he uh, did, and reconciling that with his uh, Christian faith. And rather uh, apologetically, he said, uh, he said to Tertullian, well, you know, after all, a man has to live. And Tertullian replied, does he? So I used to work in advertising. I remember once um, going on a, a seminar, uh, and uh, it was about how, how supermarkets uh, approach marketing, how they're structured, so that when you walk in through the door, um, you're going you're gonna to spend your money, and you're going to spend more um, than you ever imagined. It was, it was a fantastic uh, seminar. I wonder if this uh, rings any bells for you. Um, you park in the car park, and uh, you walk up to the supermarket entrance. There's a big, uh, bright, well-lit entrance. There's loads of uh, trolleys as you go in, and you'll make your way um, into the store, and you're immediately greeted uh, by lots of bright fruit and, uh, and flowers, and there's some music playing, and there's a smell of warm bread uh, wafting through. And uh, you think, okay, I need a basket, and you look, at, look around for a basket. You can't find a basket. They're all uh, over at the checkout, so you walk back, and, uh, and you get your trolley. Sound familiar? Okay, it could be Morrison's, it could be Asda, it could be anywhere. Well, it's, it's set up like that for a purpose. Um, there are no baskets there at the entrance because they don't want you to have a little basket. Uh, they want you to have a nice big trolley. And as soon as you've got a trolley, you feel this need to fill your trolley. Uh, even though you only popped in for some bread or for some milk, uh, you've got your trolley and you think, well, I, I need to kind of fill this up. And you've been greeted by sounds and smells and bright colours, the oranges, the apples, the fruit. And your senses are deliberately being stimulated. You're being slightly agitated. You came in in a bit of a kind of tired torpor. torpor. The last thing you wanted to do uh, was be shopping. But now you've been excited. You've been agitated. You're feeling a bit twitchy. And you want to start buying stuff. And so you walk around, and of course, every supermarket is like a labyrinth, isn't it? Nice big entrance, easy to get in, bright and well lit, but as soon as you're in, you can't find anything. You're wandering around the maze, you're going up and down, up and down. You only wanted milk or you only wanted eggs, but they're, they're hidden away. And they're deliberately hidden away. So you have to walk up and down all these aisles, past stuff you don't really uh, need but you think you might need, and so you, uh, you chuck them in the basket. You finally uh, find the bread, you get the milk, you get the eggs, you make your way uh, to the checkout. You're feeling tired. If you've got children with you, uh, they're feeling uh, grouchy. Uh, they're, they're tugging at your sleeve, they want to go home. Uh, your energy levels are a bit low, you need something to perk you up. And lo and behold, there at the counter, there's lots of sugar, there's lots of candy, there's lots of chocolate, there's lots of sweets, and they're conveniently placed at children's eye level. Uh, So your children pester you for a chocolate bar, you you fancy a packet of polos, uh, you slip them in, and then you make uh, your way out. Supermarkets are set up like this because uh, marketeers understand the power of temptation to tempt you to spend more money than you originally intended. And so too does the devil, our great enemy. He understands the power of temptation. 
And so do, too does the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He too understands the power of temptation. And that's what we're going to be thinking about uh, this morning. We're in the first Sunday of Lent, and our Lenten uh, readings as we uh, go through to Easter, they're the, the leadings, readings assigned to the church at this time of year as we consider what it means to be a follower of Christ. And part of the experience of being a follower of, of Jesus is battling with temptation. So if you want to um, follow with me, I'm going to read. Um, in the Bibles in the pews, I think we're on page uh, 1030. I'm going to start reading at um, uh, Luke chapter 3. I'm going to start reading at verse 21. And we're going to hear the story of Jesus spending 40 days in the wilderness, uh, battling with the devil, undergoing a, a trial of temptation, and overcoming that trial. And we're going to consider what that means for us um, today. Verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. We have a long genealogy. I'm going to skip over that and go to the beginning of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Just consider this for a moment. For 30 years, Jesus has um, realised more and more who he is, that he is uh, God's son, that he is uh, unique in human history, fully divine yet fully human, uh, knowing his heavenly father in an intimate and unique way. He's grown up in his knowledge of wisdom and of the presence of the Spirit. He's he's grown up to a man uh, full of the Holy Spirit. He identifies with the people around him in baptism. Though he doesn't sin, he undergoes uh, baptism for the washing away of sins. And God the Father is pleased with his Son. God the Father loves his Son. And God the Father is pleased with the way he's uh, identified with his people. And so heaven opens, and God's Spirit pours upon him. And God the Father speaks from heaven. You are my son. In you I am well pleased. What could be better than that? What could be more than a high point than that? What could be more of a mountaintop experience of that? A great, a great moment of blessing. A great moment of encounter. A great moment filled with the, the promise and presence of God. And then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, is led out into the desert. He's led immediately into a place of temptation, 
led immediately into a place of trial. Jesus' ministry is about to begin. He's entering a new phase in his life. He's going to have three years of public ministry. And that three years of public ministries is bookended uh, by trials. At the end of his life, he will undergo a trial in the course of Herod and Pontius Pilate. At the beginning of his life, he undergoes uh, another trial in the court of the wilderness. In this trial, the devil is the accuser and God the Father is the witness. No one else is there. No one else knows what happens. No one else sees what goes on. So this account that we have uh, in Luke's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel as well, uh, this comes to us from Jesus. After this trial, Jesus must have told his disciples uh, what happened. Uh, They wrote it down. The story was kept and passed on to the church and written down for us in the Gospels. And Jesus tells of his encounter with a real devil, the personification of evil. This is not a literary device. This is not a a, a psychological drama. This is a, a battle with evil incarnate. Stephen Sizer, an uh, Anglican vicar, writes this. Satan has never made himself more personally manifest than he did to Jesus in the wilderness. The Lord's own account shows unmistakably what the opponent he faced was per- that the op- opponent he faced was personal in every sense. In this very real struggle, we're given clear and applicable insights into Satan's strategy and into Christ's way of victory. Side by side, we're shown the way of danger and the way of escape, the way that leads to defeat and the way that leads to victory. In short, between the way of life and the way of death, between God and Satan. This trial, this temptation, this struggle, this battle comes after a moment of great blessing and it becomes before a time of great service. It comes after Jesus' baptism and as his ministry is about to begin. It comes while he's led by the Spirit It comes as he's described as being full of the Spirit. And so often when trials and temptations and uh, suffering and hardship come to us, we think that in some way it means that we have uh, missed out on God's blessing. That we've lost his uh, leading. That we've dropped out of his service. uh, That we've escaped his blessing. We assume that because we're battling with temptation or we're facing uh, struggles and trials, we somehow must be in the wrong place. Or that our relationship with God has somehow uh, been disrupted. But nothing could be farther from the truth uh, for Jesus. And we need to be wary of that way of thinking when we find ourselves in the time of trial. It could be that we're being refined It could be that we're being shaped. It could be that there are lessons for us to learn that are going to take us forward into a new time of ministry. So let's look at these uh, temptations. 
Again, I'll start, carry on from verse 2, chapter 4. For 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So there's three specific temptations that are going to follow, but it's not that this just happened over a course of kind of 10 minutes. But in this whole period of 40 years, he's uh, continually wrestling with temptation, but they're, they're encapsulated in these trials. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. What's behind the temptation here? What's Satan playing with here? What's he pulling on here? What what levers uh, is he manipulating? If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. In the ancient world, a uh, a fasting for 40 days was the ultimate sign of commitment, of uh, devotion to God. Jesus is undergoing one of these uh, fasts. He's coming to the end. He's weak. Uh, He's hungry. He's tired. He's lonely. His resources are low. He's on his own. And the accuser whispers in his ear, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. If. It's all in that little word, if. I read just a few moments before what the blessing was for Jesus. Heaven opens, and the Father declares, You are my beloved Son. You are my Son. And the tempter whispers, If you are God's Son, turn these stones to bread. Temptation here is not to trust. The temptation here is to doubt God's goodness. How will Jesus respond in this moment uh, of extreme hardship? The essence of this temptation is to give in to what his body is crying out for. He's desperately hungry. What the devil is saying to him is, if you're really God's son... If God really loved you, then he wouldn't have led you into this place. If he really loved you, you wouldn't be in a desert. If he really loved you, you wouldn't be hungry. If he really loved you, you wouldn't be looking at these stones and wishing they were bread. If he really loved you, you wouldn't be struggling and suffering like this. Turn the stone to bread. Rely upon your own strength, your own abilities. Don't trust in your Father anymore. And Jesus' response? Man does not live by bread alone. What Jesus says here is that, well, we're more than flesh and blood. We're more than the sum of our appetites. Jesus affirms that sometimes there comes a choice between what our body wants and what our Father says we need. There comes a battle between our human appetites and the will of God. 
And in those cases, Jesus affirms, the will of God must reign supreme. For all of us, there'll come a time, a conflict between what we want to do, what our body says we need to do, and the obedience that the word of God calls us to. There'll be moments in our life when God's will for us requires sacrifice, self-denial, when to be a faithful follower of him means saying no to ourselves and our wants and our needs, and yes to him. We're called as Christians to live lives uh, not according just to meeting our physical needs, but according to his truth. We make moral choices according to his will, not the demands of our human nature. But more than this, we live out the truth that we are God's children, that we belong to him through faith, that we are heirs of the promises given to Christ, that we are his beloved children and we will live in trust and faith in him. That in times of struggling and temptation and suffering and hardship, we'll not turn away from him. We'll not doubt his goodness and instead rely upon our own resources. But we'll keep on walking the walk of faith with him. That's the first temptation. Hard on its heels comes the second temptation. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So what's the temptation here? I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, I'll give you all authority and power in heaven and on earth, just just worship me. Just bend the knee to me. Just acknowledge me and all of this will be yours. The temptation here for Jesus is to avoid the cross. His heavenly Father will give him all authority on heaven and in earth. As he returns in a victory uh, to heaven at the ascension, uh, his heavenly Father will place all things under his feet. His heavenly Father will give him the name above all names, the name at which every knee must bow and every tongue confess. One day at the end of history, all the kings will throw down their crowns uh, before his feet. But the route to that place is the way of the cross. Jesus will bow down low before he's lifted up. He'll walk the lonely road to the cross, die a death that we can't die, live a life taken up that we might live. The route for Jesus to the highest place takes him through the lowest place, takes him to the cross, and then on to resurrection. The devil can't give what he promises. It's not within his gift, but the temptation is still real. The temptation to avoid the cross, 
to take the easy way out, to avoid the suffering and the struggle and the trial and the pain that's coming to Jesus. Is Jesus going to allow his heavenly Father to be supreme in all things? Is he going to follow the path of obedience marked out for him? Is Jesus going to let God be God? And his response is this. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus passes the test. But imagine for a moment uh, that he'd failed. Imagine for a moment that he'd uh, bent the knee. Imagine for a moment he'd succumbed uh, to the temptation. Roy McCluffrey, a, a, a theologian at Nottingham University, writes this. Imagine if Jesus had given in and turned stones to bread or bent the knee. How could the hungry of the world identify with a man who conjured food out of rocks? A trick. But the trick would be on those who are hungry. If Jesus never knew hunger or pain or sorrow, how could we be members of the same family? How could the powerless and the broken-hearted empathise with a man who avoided suffering and who did the spectacular things to advertise his product? Roll up and see the God who suffers with us, jumping to his death, only to be caught at the last minute in the safety net of angels' arms. Would this be good news to those who suffer? Would this be good news for the victims of the world? Jesus stands firm in the time of trial, and then we come uh, to the third temptation. The devil led him to Jerusalem and made him stand on the highest point of the temple. If, that word again, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. First temptation is not to trust. Second temptation is to avoid the cross. The third temptation is to presume upon God's grace. In each of his answers, Jesus has quoted uh, the Bible back to Satan, the accuser. And this time, Satan quotes the Bible uh, to Jesus. Uh, Just because someone is able to quote uh, chapter and verse, it doesn't mean that they are right. And so it is uh, with Satan. He quotes from Psalm 91, a psalm which speaks of God's uh, deliverance and his protection of the Messiah. And Jesus will know God's deliverance and his protection in his life. There will be moments before the cross when Jesus' life is in danger and his heavenly Father delivers him. Think of the storm on the lake when the, the boat was about to capsize. 
Think of the moment in the crowd when the crowd were going to take him and throw him off a cliff and then uh, Jesus miraculously uh, walks through them. No one would take Jesus' life from him. Instead, he would choose to lay it down. But here's the temptation. Presume upon God's good grace. Show that he is the saviour through a dramatic trick. Reduce living in faith and living in the providence and purposes of God to magic spells. A leap in the air and a catch by angels. Avoid the cross and the resurrection as the Father's way of revealing his love and his power. And Jesus' response? Do not put the Lord to the test. Do not presume upon his grace. Do not take advantage of his willingness to forgive. Remember, I'd been at St. Giles for a couple of years, not, not too long, and um, a young couple asked if they could come and see me and said their marriage was in prob- uh, trouble, they're having some problems, could they come and discuss them uh, with me? And I said, yes, of course. There are a couple um, who'd been married at St. Giles a few years before, before my time uh, here at the church. And so we got into the conversations, as you know, always do in that situation, found out a bit more about them, found out their background, found out uh, the situation, what was going on, and what had led them uh, to this place. And it soon became uh, apparent that, that in their marriage, the, the problem, the root of the problem, was that the, um, the husband uh, was being utterly selfish. Uh, he was living life as though it was all about him. And his wife, she would just have to fit in uh, with what he wanted. She would just have to go along uh, with what, uh, what he wanted. Being completely and utterly selfish. And we talked it through and we went around the houses and I kind of gently tried to point this back out to him. And he, he acknowledged it quite, quite freely. With no, no shame or embarrassment or abandon. This, this was just how um, it was going to be. I said to him, I think, I think your marriage is in real danger. I could see you splitting up, and they knew that was the case as well. You, you've got to change. Um, both of you need to change, but you know, to the guy, you, you've, really, you've, really, uh, you've really got to change. And so he fixed them up with some uh, marriage counselling. But as an aside, I, I knew that he had a church going in his background, and that uh, as a younger lad, he'd gone to church. And he'd referred to this several times uh, in our conversation. And in the end, I said, look, how do you think God feels about this? You made promises in church. You made vows before God about how you would love your, lo- how you would love, uh, your wife. How you'd love her and honour her and protect her. How you'd lay down your life for her. How does this fit with your kind of the way that you're behaving, the way that you're living, the pressure you're putting on your marriage. And he said this, and it utterly, utterly uh, floored me, um, left me completely speechless. He said, well, I know God will forgive me. I know he'll forgive me. Even if our marriage breaks up, I know he'll forgive me. I know I can always uh, start again. I was utterly floored. I didn't have the presence of mind to respond. But if I was in that conversation now, um, I would say this to him. I'd take him to Matthew uh, chapter 7, where Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name did we not drive out demons and perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not presume upon his grace. Do not take advantage of his willingness to forgive. Jesus knew that he couldn't place himself in mortal danger and expect his heavenly father to snap his fingers and deliver him. And in the same way, you cannot place yourself in moral danger and expect God, because he is God, just to snap his fingers and deliver you. face moral danger in the workplace, we face moral danger in our relationships, we face moral danger in how we handle money. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not presume upon his grace. Jesus comes through. Jesus resists temptations. He doesn't, he doesn't bend the knee. Uh, Satan leaves him. It says it leaves, he leaves him until an opportune time. This temptation will return again and again in the ministry and in the life of Jesus. Temptation will come our way too. And we can resist too, just as we saw Jesus resist. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way. We have a high priest, meaning Jesus, um, who is able to empathise with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I'm not tempted to turn stones into bread. But I am tempted to doubt God's goodness when life gets difficult. I am tempted not to trust in him and to rely instead on my own resources. When things go wrong in my life, when my plans are frustrated, when what I want to happen doesn't work out, I'm very quick to become irritable or frustrated, or angry. Signs that reveal a lack of trust in God. Is he sovereign or not? Do all things work for good for those who love him or not? As Jesus said, bread alone is not what life is all about. I am tempted not to trust I'm not tempted to bow down and worship Satan in exchange for the kingdoms of the world. But I am tempted to avoid the cross. I'm often tempted to see God as less than who he is. I'm tempted to live life without reference to him. I'm tempted to take the easy way out rather than the hard way. To take the easy option rather than the right one. I'm often tempted to see God as there to meet my needs rather than me live a life which is glorifying and honouring to him. 
Jesus points the way to humble service. Take up your cross and follow me. And the reward he offers is not kingdoms and authority, but life eternal. This is eternal life, that you might know me and the one who sent me. I'm not tempted to jump off too many buildings and have angels catch me. But I am tempted to presume upon his grace, to take advantage of his mercy and his kindness. I'm tempted to make God's word more convenient, to make it say what I want it to say, to ignore its challenges and just uh, take hold of its encouragements. I'm tempted to make shortcuts, to look for easy fixes uh, rather than prayer and sacrifice. The temptations that Jesus faced are temptations that are common to us all and that came to us all. Uh, But he is victorious. He's not just an example for us, but he's a saviour to us. His grace is sufficient. His mercy is sure. And when we come to his throne, we will say, we will find mercy and grace for our time of need. If we turn to him in our time of trial, he will deliver us. He will pull us through. And we can be confident at those times when we stumble and fall. He'll be there to lift us up, to pick us up, and set us back upon the right path. I'll quote again uh, from that uh, 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 thing that Roy McCluffrey said. How could the hungry of the world identify the man who conjured food out of rocks? A trick, oh yes, but it would be the hungry who were tricked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and for his example. And we thank you that we have a high priest who's not far off and distant, uh, but who is close and understands uh, the pressures and the trials and the temptations that we face. We thank you that in you we know we have a God who loves us and cares for us, who's victorious over sin and death, uh, Satan, uh, the accuser. Lord, give us the confidence to turn to you, to approach your throne of grace. Inspire us afresh when we turn away to turn back to you, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to walk the way of the cross. Help us to live lives that honour you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Band are going to come back. Hannah's going to lead us. Um, this first song is a song we have sung a couple of times, but we might not be too familiar. Um, but Hannah ran through it at the start of the service. It's This Is My